Hey there, this is Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast that has slow walk through Dante's first third of his masterpiece comedy. I'm gasping over the past tense, has. We have come to the end. And in the next two episodes, which are the end of Inferno for us, I want to, in this episode, talk about kind of Inferno in a larger scale, a kind of overview of Inferno itself, look back across its landscape and try to make some general conclusions about the poem itself. And then in the next episode on the podcast drop, I want to talk about ways that you might take your understanding of Inferno further, ways that you might deepen your understanding, things we couldn't do in this podcast, things that this podcast left out and that are still yet to be explored by you. If you want to continue on the walk in Inferno, we won't. We'll be heading off to Purgatorio after a break in the podcast. If you're listening in real time, we're going to have a break. I need a few weeks off just to catch my breath. And then we're ready to start the climb up Purgatorio. So let's talk about Inferno as a whole and what we can say about the poem itself. I want to talk about a couple negatives to start off and things that I noticed as I was doing that quick read through the entire poem itself. There are a series of pretty awkward transitions inside of Inferno. Now, I don't want to hold Dante to a modern notion of coherence or a modern notion of unified artistic stance. I realize that would be an insane thing to claim for Dante writing in the early 1300s. And yet at the same time, there are moments where we can feel the text jar a bit. Yes, we come out of the circle of the gluttons and across the great enemy Plutus. And yes, there's a transition there, but there are other places where the transition between scenes seems rather awkward. It doesn't seem fully worked out. It seems as if we kind of bump over a transition point. I will say this about Inferno as a whole. It seems as if Purgatorio and Paradiso are much more, what's the best word I can use, seamless? They seem to have better transition points, and they don't seem to bump over little cracks between cantos or cracks between scenes, as does Inferno. Maybe that has to do with the fact that in Inferno, there's so much going on that has to do with canto breaks. That is, Dante feels the need to sum up an episode at the end of a canto, not toward the end of Inferno, but certainly early on. When we hit Purgatorio next, Dante is not going to feel any need to respect any canto breaks, although we can make arguments for why the episode breaks over to Cantos the way it does, still nonetheless, he doesn't feel the same need to contain episodes inside of Cantos. So maybe that has to do with a growth on his part. But I will say in the fast read through, I noticed some rather awkward transitions. Maybe there's an explanation for that. Juxtaposition is a core of Gothic art, of medieval art. And we could perhaps say that part of the jarring nature, the transitional lurch in Inferno, is part of that juxtaposition. I've talked about this before on the podcast, but I just want to talk about it again. In, in, uh, this is too general to say, but in much Gothic art, the reason I'm hesitating is because it's way too general to say, but in much Gothic art, there is an emphasis 
on juxtaposition. For example, you put Mary and Adam on the facade of a uh, cathedral. You put Mary and Peter, Adam and Eve, various figures on the facade of a cathedral. And then you put them in juxtaposition with other figures, gargoyles, demons. Sometimes, let's say, in this case, Mary and Adam. By putting Mary and Adam together rather than Adam and Eve, you've created a tension between the two, the great saint Mary. Mary, Jesus's mother, and then the one who caused the fall of humanity, Adam. So you're creating a tension between them. And it's if in that case, let's pretend that we've seen that on a cathedral. We could argue that there, the cathedral makers are perhaps showing us that Mary is the new Eve, that she is the new mother of humanity through the birth of Jesus. And that juxtaposition would help create the meaning. The whole idea here is that Mary alone or Adam alone do not mean as much as Mary and Adam together. Together, they actually create meaning in this notion of gothic juxtaposition. And maybe there is some juxtaposition going on in Inferno itself that creates meaning. And we have certainly explored that over and over again in the slow walk parts of this podcast in which we watch the scenes rub up against each other and create friction. There are some awkward classical references in Inferno. Remember like the opening of Canto 30? We're pretty late in Inferno. We have that whole bit about simile and Thebes and Troy and mothers bashing their children's brains out and jumping in the ocean and all that stuff. And then we just kind of leap into the plot itself. That strikes me as a particularly awkward moment. There, the classical reference there is kind of sitting on the text. It's not woven well into the text itself. And I think this is also part of the learning curve that Dante is going through. In Purgatorio, you will discover that the classical references are much more part of the fabric of the text. They don't sit on it like ornaments. Rather, they're woven down into it more successfully. I say successfully because I'm talking about a modern perspective here, and perhaps here we can see Dante on the cusp of a modern notion of art. That is, if I'm going to make a reference to, I don't know, the Aeneid or Ovid, I've got to now, let's say I'm writing a novel and I'm going to make a reference to Ovid inside of it, I've got to now weave that reference kind of down into the text itself so that it becomes part of the overall narrative flow, as opposed to, let's say, the opening of Canto 30 in Inferno with the references to Simile and Thebes and Troy. It's almost sitting up there as an ornament, as an embroidery stitch on top of the plot of Inferno. And I think that Dante comes to a deeper understanding of how to work with plot as he writes the poem. Remember, my thesis is that comedy is a poem in process. And while we can say, okay, well, in Paradiso, Dante thinks blank, 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 and then we can point back to Inferno 12, I'm making this up, and say, well, there, Dante thinks blank, blank, blank. I don't think we can say that in Inferno 12, Dante anticipates Paradiso 30 or Paradiso 21. I think the poem is being developed under us as it is being written forward. But one of the things that Dante does do masterfully is he sets up the scenes 
ahead of him. And we talked about this repeatedly in the slow walk. And when I was doing the fast walk just straight through and reading it straight through, I just kept coming across this in my head. You know, the references to sailing before Ulysses shows up on scene. This this notion that he's setting me up for what's ahead. That shows me that he's starting to understand that the plot needs to appear seamless, that it needs to appear without juncture or without division. When you stitch together two pieces of fabric, you can either make the patterns line up so that one piece of fabric goes straight into the next, or you just willy-nilly sew them together and the patterns don't match at the seam. Sometimes in Inferno, the patterns don't match at the seam, but we can start to see him, especially in the way that he sets up episodes ahead of us, the way he sets up anticipatorily what's ahead, let's say even with the beasts on the hill at the opening of Inferno, we can see how he's setting us up for a kind of dialogue ahead on the various natures of sin. And I would say that for a medieval poem, that is an amazing achievement. I think we can also say that as Inferno moves forward, it begins to fold back on itself. And this makes it super modern. Modern fictions, modern prose narratives, modern plots fold back on themselves. There are moments in Portrait of a Lady or in Absalom, Absalom or in The Great Gatsby in which a sequence late, let's say, in the novel is folding back toward a sequence at the front of the novel. Let's say in Portrait of a Lady, when Rafe is dying of consumption in his bed and Isabel comes to England to see him, the scene they have together and the discussion they have about love wraps back to earlier scenes in which she and Rafe discuss the nature of love. It pulls it toward Rafe's notion of giving her money because he wants to see her going before him on the wind. And now she has fully shipwrecked in her marriage. There's always that that scene is wrapping back and folding back in the novel itself. And in the same way, we can see that Inferno is starting to fold back on itself. Late scenes are starting to fold back toward previous scenes. Dis, the walls of dis, Satan is dis, behold dis. It's starting to kind of empty into itself. The vessel is becoming its own vessel. It's being poured from itself into itself. That kind of meta-literary or, let's say, folding technique is very much a part of the construction of modern narrative, and it is very skillfully done toward the back of Inferno. We start to see it more and more as the poem makes reference to itself, picks up its own characters, and we're going to see this ahead. When we get in Purgatorio, one of the first references we're going to have is to Ulysses. If you remember, Ulysses' founders looking for Purgatorio. Well, I don't know he's looking for it, but they sail out of Gibraltar, the gates of Gibraltar, and out into the open sea, and then do find Mount Purgatory, and then go down in the whirlpool. That bit is reflected early on in Purgatorio. So the poem is even going to start referring back back to itself. We're going to have nodes of Francesca. We're going to have nodes of Pierre de la Vigna, nodes of Ulysses that are going to follow us into Purgatorio so that we're wrapping backwards. A masterful and very careful stroke. 
think one of the ways that I have been dumbstruck by Inferno in this two and a half year process of working with it is the level of world creation that is going on here. Dante is truly creating a world. He is creating a world in the way, and please forgive me for this lowbrow reference, but in the way that sci-fi writers and sci-fi shows do, or fantasy like Tolkien and C.S. Lewis in the Narnia Chronicles. You're, You're having to create an entire world with its own laws, its own perspectives, its own uh, uh, characters, its own rules of narrative and both character development and writerly style. This is full-on world creation. Now, listen, there are plenty of visions of the afterlife before Dante. We can go to Homer and find them there. We can go to Virgil's Aeneid. There are also um, uh, non-canonical gospels like the Apocalypse of Peter and the Apocalypse of Paul, both of which Dante probably knew one more than the other, but both of them he probably knew. Both of these are tours of the afterlife, as happens in Homer's Odyssey, as happens in Virgil's Aeneid. But Dante is doing so much more than any of these do. Even the apocalypse of Peter and the apocalypse of Paul show various sins being punished in hell, but it's not to the full-on developmental sequence as Dante gives it. And I think Dante's mastercraft of world building is phenomenal. The hell that he builds while relying on the foundations of Homer, Virgil, perhaps non-canonical literature from the New Testament period, as well as Aquinas, while it's resting on all of that, oh, and Ovid and Lucan too, of course, at the same time, the level of his creation is absolutely overwhelming. It feels like a hermetic world. It feels like a hermeneutic world that is both sealed and making its own meaning inside of the seal. We can also see over the course of Inferno the developmental hypothesis for the pilgrim. The pilgrim is learning, and as the pilgrim learns, the pilgrim changes. This is quite modern, quite unusual. I don't know that we can say that any of the pilgrims in the Canterbury Tales change. Uh, One of them kind of comes in for some rough stuff when uh, the canon's yeoman shows up. Uh, You know, there are ways in which we might be able to argue that there's some kind of change in the Chaucerian figure in the Canterbury Tales between his first tale of Sir Topas and his second tale of Melaby. But we're really pushing hard into that. And I don't know that we see any characters change. We do in some romances and in romance literature like Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, Knights of the Round Table, uh, Chrétien de Troyes, these kind of tales of romance. We actually do see characters change. Gawain changes dramatically in Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. And Dante seems to be bringing that romance trope of a developmental character to his own pilgrim. In the modern world, of course, we expect all our characters to grow, to learn, to go through challenges, to come out the other end differently. It helps build the linearity of a narrative for us. 
But in Dante's day, it's not necessarily the case. And yet we see it here. We can see the pilgrim from those early fear stances in the wood all the way out to the end. Yes, he quakes in front of Satan, but nonetheless, he's come to trust Virgil. He takes a hold of Virgil, they climb out, and then they climb up. That entire climb from the middle of the earth out to the other side is done without any murmuring or complaining. I got to do it. Here we go. Out we climb in just a few lines in that last canto. I think we're seeing the pilgrim change. We saw him come more prophetic with the Pope down in the Simoniac holes. We saw him attempting to outdo Ovid and Lucan with the thieves and then backing it up and saying he's going to rein in his talent. We're seeing the poet change. We're seeing the pilgrim change. There is an incremental developmental hypothesis. Wow. Let me say that one more time. An incremental developmental hypothesis that is going on with both the pilgrim and perhaps the poet Dante over the course of Inferno. And we should set up and take notice because it is not the case in many medieval poems, not the case certainly in Latini's Tresor or Tesoretto. I think we can also see over the course of Inferno Dante's willingness to break orthodoxy in the name of, well, I'd like to say in the name of narrative strategy of storytelling. I don't think so. I think he's willing to break the church's orthodoxy in the name of what he perceives is a greater, purer orthodoxy. I think we'll see this more fully in Purgatorio, but Dante's willing to break the notion of what sin is here in Inferno even in order to build on what he thinks is a greater orthodoxy. And let me explain this for just a minute about sin. This will become really abundantly clear in Purgatorio, but Throughout Inferno, we're starting to develop this idea that sin is a choice, that these are people who have made very bad choices. And yes, several times Dante slips and calls them bad-born souls, as if they're made this way. But as we'll see in Purgatorio, nobody's made bad, which then means you're, oh, what, uh, backing away from original sin? You're backing away from church orthodoxy because you want sin to be a choice, because you want it to be something that humans do, that I put myself in this predicament. And it's quite an amazing break from orthodoxy for what I think is a better and purer orthodoxy. Let me give you an example of this, and this has nothing to do with Dante. In another part of my life, I am currently leading a book discussion group on Thomas Pynchon's novel, Mason and Dixon, which is a glorious miasma of non-linearity, one of the strangest and most overwhelming books I have ever read just before I recorded this episode of this podcast, I came out of one of those discussions and someone in the discussion said, this book is making me feel stupid. And I stopped the whole discussion, which I never do in discussion, but I stopped it and I said, okay, the book is inanimate. The book cannot make you feel inadequate. You feel inadequate, and you were looking for resonances in the world that confirm 
your own sense of inadequacy. And the book has filled that place in. But the book is just an inanimate object. It can't make you feel anything like a piano. Let's say you walk past a piano in a room and you think to yourself, oh, man, I wish I'd learned to play the piano. The piano didn't make you think that. You thought that. You have regrets. Or let's say you know how to play the piano and you walk past the piano and you think, oh, man, I'm so lazy. I wish I'd practiced more. That's you talking to you. The piano's not doing anything. The piano is just there. You're looking for nodes of representation in the world to bring those feelings out of you. In the same way, Dante's saying the same thing to you, that what you do wrong is not because somebody made you do it. That's what you tell yourself. That's what Pierre de la Vigne tells himself. But Dante is there constantly telling you, no, and Francesca, no, the book didn't make you commit adultery. You did it. You did it on your own. You may have been lulled toward it, but the adulterous impulse was already in you and you were acting on it. You're blaming the book. Don't blame the book. You did it. And now you're trying desperately to get our pilgrim and by a sly way, our reader to say the same thing. But no, you did it. You killed yourself, Pierre. You did this to yourself, Brunetto. You did this to yourself, Ulysses. You are the cause of your own errors. That break with orthodoxy in the service of what I think Dante thinks is a greater orthodoxy is quite revolutionary. Another thing that I am struck with in a kind of overview of Inferno is the way the afterlife is, and I'm going to use a really funny word right here, democratic. And what I mean by democratic is when we get down in the afterlife in, let's say, Homer or in the Aeneid, we see very prominent people, Odysseus, Macy's mother, there's all kinds of kings and queens. When we see the afterlife in uh, the uh, non-canonical gospels and apocalypses, it's often full of saints, big figures, big sinners. We see some of those here in Inferno, but what is amazing is the few that we see. I mean, we don't see that many. Yes, we see a pope. We see, oh, Capaneus. We see Ulysses, he's a big figure. But then we see a lot of run-of-the-mill Tuscans. We see a lot of run-of-the-mill Sienese. We see court figures like Pierre de la Vigne. Yes, we're told his monarch, Frederick II, is down in the tomb with Farinata, but we don't see Frederick II. But we might, in many visions of the afterlife, it is always full of great saintly figures and great dastardly historical demons who have done the world in. Here, yes, Attila is over there, but we don't really see Attila. Yes, Frederick's down in that tomb, but we don't really see Frederick. We do see some big figures, Semiramis and Dido, up on the wind, but who we're directed toward is Francesca. Note the, for lack of a better word, democratic notion of the afterlife. Hell and the afterlife for Dante is made up of run-of-the-mill people. Yes, great people too. And there are going to be some big ones ahead. Wow, wait till we get to Paradiso, some really big ones ahead. But at the same time, it's full of a lot of just ordinary folks. That 
strikes me as an incredibly interesting position, one that is contrary to the church that so lauds its martyrs and its gigantic larger-than-life heroes. There were just some access points to Inferno. I didn't do anything other than just give you some ways to think more about what happens in Inferno and various access points into it. This was not supposed to be some kind of major summation of Inferno because, after all, let's let Inferno be the summation of Inferno. That having read it straight through, that is Inferno and the glory that it is. One more episode this time about some things we missed in this podcast on Inferno, and then we will be ready for the climb. Thanks for being on this journey with me. Please rate this podcast. Please write me on my website, markscarbo.com. Please connect with me on social media like Twitter and Facebook. I'm Mark Scarborough. I'll see you soon. Mm-hmm.